0: Well, good morning and welcome to Sailorville Church Online. I'm Pat Nimmers, the lead pastor here. And if you brought a Bible uh, to the living room or wherever you are at in your home this morning, you can find your way to Exodus chapter 14 as we continue in our series on the the journey to freedom as it uh, continues. Uh, Loved that last song we just worshipped to. I hope you did, too. And I know that many of you delighted in seeing the smiling, effervescent face of uh, Paul Seymour, who will actually be back again next week, not only singing, well, he's actually going to be preaching the word, because this great miracle passage we're in this morning is going to give way to great praise, a great song, and maybe even a psalm of praise, and Paul is going to lead us, Lord willing, on that, so you can be praying about that. We're ecstatic, actually, about it. When you talk about miracles, let's think about the greatest miracle in the Old Testament. And when you think, what's the greatest miracle in the Old Testament, what comes to your mind? Some of you are thinking, well, creation. I mean, you can't really hardly top that. Uh, Others maybe went to the walls of Jericho coming down after the Israelites went around it seven times in one day. How about Jonah? Uh, In the belly of the fish, that probably came to some of your minds. Or the the universal flood that decimated the the entire world. Some of you might be thinking of the manna that came down every single day and only for that day, unless it was just before the Sabbath. I wonder how many of you thought about the parting of the Red Sea. What a mighty miracle of God the parting of the Red Sea is. And that, that story is right here in the 14th chapter of Exodus, actually, when you talk about miracles, there's about 160 or more, depending on how you count, in the entire Bible. And it's roughly evenly divided between Old and uh, and New Testament. But I just want to talk briefly about what a miracle is, because I think sometimes we just we've just dumbed down the word itself. Uh, a miracle. What is a miracle? It's been defined in different ways. Uh, some have defined it as uh, Well, in fact, one individual, Henry Morris, who is a scientist, a creation scientist, I love his definition. It's it's something that's scientifically impossible, but happens anyway. That's short, kind of humorous, but it's actually true. A miracle is something that is scientifically impossible, but it happens anyway. That same Henry Morris was teaching his students one day and he, he told this story, true story, of a pilot who was in a plane, the plane blew up, everybody on board died in this, bl- this plane exploding in mid-air, except for the pilot who, who automatically ejected. And uh, there was a woman on the ground watching this whole drama unfold as he tumbled and tumbled and tumbled, tried to pull his, his parachute, it wouldn't come out, he continued to tumble, finally the parachute released. And it was shredded. Now, it did cause some resistance, and he, but not enough. He was coming down nearly a free fall until he entered into two giant trees right above her farm and caught him just doot, 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 all the way down. He literally landed right in front of the woman, unharmed. He captivated his students with that story, and then he said to them, Students, I would call that a Class B miracle. <laughs> They're all thinking, are you kidding me? That's a miracle. But that was his point. Was it amazing? Absolutely. Was it, was it an act of God? Because in the story, he said the woman was praying, and so was he as he was the, you know, the pilot, as he tumbled in the sky. He was praying. Was it an act of God? Of, of course it was. But was it, was it scientifically impossible what happened? No, when I hear people say every time a baby is born, it's a miracle. I understand the sentiments, but I hate to break your bubble, but that's not a miracle. That's pretty natural. When money comes, when you didn't know it was going to from someplace, from someone, it's dramatic, it's wonderful, but it's not a miracle. When you have an answered prayer, is that an act of God? Yes, but it's, it's not a miracle. Circumstances coming together. Wonderful things. They're all good gifts, as James says, good gifts from God. They all come from God, these good gifts. But they're not necessarily miracles. But when a crippled man who's been that way for 38 years gets up and walks, when a blind man sees, when a deaf man hears, when a mute man talks, when a man with a withered hand is suddenly stretched out, and when a dead man comes to life, that's a miracle. Because it's scientifically, all of them, they come under that realm of being scientifically impossible, but they happen anyway. Now, we have a genuine bona fide miracle. When when waters of a sea part and the ground below it dries and two million people walk through that path to their freedom, that's a miracle. So we've been studying the Exodus. We've seen the Passover, the decimation of, uh, of the Egyptian nation and many of its peoples. The Passover finally frees up Pharaoh, lets them go. And if you were with us last week, we saw how God leads us. And interestingly, he didn't lead them through the path of least resistance. He did actually he didn't lead them through the the as the as the crow flies. Not not the most logical way. He actually took them opposite. And as we begin in chapter 14, God sort of reminds Moses that I, I, I'm up to something here I'm still bringing glory to myself here you're not going to go the most logical way you, in fact I'm going to send you the opposite way and I'm going to tell you right now <laughs> Pharaoh's not going to like it true to form he's going to he's going to sort of come to his senses and harden his heart and he's going to come after you and I am going to bring ultimate glory to myself and in the middle of it all, so, so what happens is the, the children of Israel are, go opposite of the way of Canaan, and we'll see the map after a bit, and, and they go into the Sinai, and they come up against the Red Sea. Now, they might have actually come up against the Red Sea before they got into the Sinai, and again, I'll talk about that in a minute. Don't really know for sure, but we know this, they're up against the Red Sea, a sea. They are blocked in. The Egyptians are coming at them. In spite of everything they've seen, the scripture tells us that when Pharaoh drew near, they lifted up their eyes and they were fear struck. And they cried out to the Lord and Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? And thus began the long history of Jewish humor. I mean, seriously. And this is when God really comes through And uh, so for the rest of the reading of this drama, my good friend, uh, Lenny Seiler is going to come and read the scripture for us. Lenny, would you come and read the word of God?
1: Exodus chapter 14, beginning with verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid Stand firm, and you will see deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea, to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of the fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficult driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Blessed be the reading of the word of God. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you so much, Lenny. Blessed indeed be the reading of the word of God. And what a story. Do you believe this story? I'm reminded of the sixth grader who came home to talk to his mom. She wasn't a churchgoer, but she just sent him to church. She'd gone to church when she was a little girl. And uh, she asked him what he what he'd learned about. He said, well, you know, we learned about the, the Israelites crossing, uh, going through the Red Sea. And she goes, oh, my goodness, you know, that story is kind of vaguely familiar to me. Remind, remind me what happened. He said, well, they'd been enslaved for 400 years, and anyway, so God kind of helped them get out of there, and Moses was leading them, and they got to the Red Sea, and, the, and here come uh, these Egyptians, and they have all these chariots and everything, so they see so they built this huge bonfire that just made this humongous fire with lots of big, giant column of smoke, and it kind of kept the Egyptians from getting to them. And then they they brought in their army corps of engineers and they built pontoons across the Red Sea. And so they all got across the Red Sea and just when they got across the Egyptians, the fire kind of dwindled and they were able to get around it. And then they got on the pontoons and they're, they're all on the pontoons. And then they, they flew bombers over and they blew up the pontoons and all the Egyptians died. And uh, his mom goes, gee whiz, I guess it's been a while since I heard that. I thats i guess that's not how I remember the story. And he goes, well, that's not really the story, Mom, but if I told you what really happened, <laughs> you'd never believe it. Well, that's kind of a miracle, isn't it? And we're talking about a lot of scientifically impossible stuff going on here. And last week, if you were with us, we, we gave you both the human and divine reasons in which God... Uh, did not allow the Jews to go the quickest way up into Canaan. Uh, but there was another divine reason God had them go the opposite way and right up against the Red Sea. And that's because he was going to bring glory to himself by utterly annihilating the powerful Egyptian army, which you'll notice in the text and let, that Lenny read. The, uh, the The king, the pharaoh, brought 600 of his choice chariots and then Many other chariots, they estimate there were over 2,000 chariots. And a chariot, an Egyptian chariot, could carry from one to three men, to fighters and drivers, and they were, they were like the tanks of the early days. Anybody, a chariot just inflicted fear upon the enemy in which they were coming at. So... Here's a question that I know a lot of you have. If you've done any studying, you've read this, you, you've asked the question where did the Israelites cross at the Red Sea? And it is a good question, and there's a lot of debate and a lot of uh, projected uh, you know, uh, crossings, many in fact. Uh, this, but this look at in, the reason why there's so much dispute is because of the, the term Red Sea. Uh, the, the term, the Hebrew term is Yom Suf. Yom Suf. Yam means sea and Suf means reeds. And so the sea of reeds or the sea of papyrus. This is where the disagreements begin. Let me show you a map here of, uh, of the area here. And let me just show you real quick. So so this is the area where the Jews would have been. This is the area of Goshen. Uh, actually up in here is Goshen. And so uh, many believe that this little this little body of water here is called the Sea of uh, the Bitter Lake, uh, the Sea of Reeds. It's in here, so they they would have crossed over here. Many believe. Some believe they crossed over here. Some believe they crossed here. And believe it or not, some believe they actually came over here all the way down the Sinai and then actually crossed right here because there's been sort of a they, a perceived uh, uh, lower area where you could actually cross. And many actually believe. That's where it is, and this is where Mount Sinai is over here, and Mount Sinai isn't here. There's a lot of differences and a lot of debate on that. So many believe that that northern, so here's the Red Sea, and this is that, this is, these are the extensions. So you've got the, you've got the western extension, you've got the eastern extension, and so people believe that the crossing took place at some point in one of these extensions, and here's the problem. Uh, because Red Sea means sea of reeds, many conclude that must be the, that's, that's referring to the marshes. Marshes ha, can have as much as six inches of water or 18 inches of water. Maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, not much. And so many believe it was, it was through the marsh that they went. Because reeds, papyrus, doesn't grow in deep waters. Now here's the problem. The problem with that is that Yom Suf, which does mean Sea of Reeds, was also used to, to refer just to the Red Sea itself. So in 1 Kings chapter 9, Solomon had a fleet of ships in the Red Sea, in the Yom Suf. I guarantee you he didn't have a fleet of ships in six inches of water. And then there's this whole business, again in the Bible reading in verses 22 and in verse 29, where there is a wall mentioned. In fact, we've got the verse here to show you right here in verse 29 in, uh, in chapter 14. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground. There's a scientific miracle. Through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on the left, and it's mentioned again in verse 22. So they literally are looking at walls. So, uh, you know, Cecil B. DeMille's depiction with Charlton Heston is probably not far from the truth. So where did... They cross the Red Sea. I hate to disappoint you, but I don't know. I really don't. I don't know. I will say this. I'm convinced when we get hung up on locations, we lose sight of the greater discovery, the glory of God. Let me say that again. I am convinced when I think of the big picture and all these, the many locations that people just strive to discover, to find, I think when we get hung up on the locations, we lose the greater discovery, the glory of God. This is fascinating to me. When you think of all the locations, important locations like this one, that are not definitively known, like the crossing of the Red Sea, like where is Mount Sinai, like Where is the ark on Mount Ararat? Like, where was Calvary? Is it Gordon's Calvary? Is it a different Calvary? Where is the empty tomb? You know, you go to Israel, and I've been there three times, uh, myself, leading tours, and I've been to those, that I've been to the place they think the cross was. I've been to the place they think the tomb was. Uh, I actually was there one time, and our people were just enamored. It was, it's fascinating. We know this was the general area for sure. But I looked over at our guide, really, really smart guy. I said, do you think this is the actual tomb that Jesus was buried in and rose from? He just looked at me. He goes, no. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> Here's a picture of me standing uh, before some an archaeological dig, this is the very area where where uh, this is the area where Caiaphas and Jesus would have been interrogated. The very area where Peter would have denied the Lord three times. Those stones here, off to my right, those are first-century stones. It is highly likely that Jesus literally stepped foot on some of those stones. I mean, wouldn't that be cool to walk on those, huh? But I don't think I'd be made any holier if I did. Doesn't the Bible tell us to walk by faith and not by what? Not by sight? And that's the reason why I think I'm convinced that a lot of these locations, important though they be, are not definitively known. I I think God is trying to help prevent us from from getting off into the weeds, no pun intended, (laughs) or the reeds, and get the greater discovery. And the greater discovery is himself. Now, speaking of sight, these Jews catch the sight of all of these chariots thundering towards them, and they're terrified, even though they've seen this repeated demonstration of God's power and deliverance in their lives. The 10 plagues had just taken place. The Passover had taken place just days earlier. But they're just like us. They're just like you and me. We fear by the sight of things that threaten us. We ought to know. We know better. We ought to believe. We ought to trust. We've seen God do great things in our lives before, many of us at least, but we forget. And talk about miracles, by the way, just from the reading. So keep in mind, here they're being led. We saw this last week. They're led by God by a pillar of cloud in the day, a pillar of fire at night. And as the Egyptians are thundering toward them, the pillar comes around. It circumvents the entire Jewish people and comes between them and the Egyptians. Now, literally, I've read naturalists who will say, well, you know, pillars of cloud, just sort of interesting phenomena that occurs in these areas. This is very naturally you know uh, uh, you know explained. Well, can you explain a pillar <laughs> that creates darkness on one side and light on the other? And what a powerful, powerful picture of what happens when you come to Christ and The situation you are in before you come to know Jesus, you're in darkness when you come to know Jesus, you are a light, you are literally a child of the light. But here it is depicted, this is a miracle, an absolute miracle. In spite of it all, the people, fear is reigning with them. So Moses, who'd heard from God in the front half of chapter 14, now has a word for them and he has a word for you, he has a word for me. And here it is, fear not, stand firm, be still, and go forward. You know, when you want to get things done, we have an expression, you take the gloves off. When you take the gloves off, you're saying, no longer am I going to stand still. I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I'm going after it. I'm going to exert my authority and my power. But when it comes to the child of God, we, there is a time to take the gloves off. But in this case, he wants us to put the, keep the gloves on. Let God do the boxing. Let him do the fighting. And that's all sort of depicted in the idea of fear not, stand firm and be still. But there is a time to go forward. So let's just look at this, shall we? We too will experience the power of God because that's what I want. That's what you want. We want the power of God. And the scripture says power comes from God. The Apostle Paul said, I want to experience the power of the cross. It's to those who are are being saved, it's the power of God. It's foolishness to those of you that are watching who don't believe in the miracle of the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you need to. We can experience the power of God when we fear not and believe God. We saw that in verse 13. He says, don't fear, fear not. Skip Isaac said this, sometimes what we see clouds what we know. That's worth memorizing. Sometimes what we see clouds what we know. They should have known. They're seeing these chariots thundering towards them. And yeah, they're fearful, but shouldn't they already know they are serving an omnipotent God, an all-powerful God who has decimated the nation of Egypt and is about to do that to their army. Why wouldn't they just believe it? But they didn't. Even Jesus' disciples, after seeing all those miracles for those three years, after he tells them that he's going to go away, they're so downtrodden. They should have believed. He has to tell them to do that, if you recall. In John chapter 14, he says, If you believe in God, believe also in me. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me. In my my father's house, there's lots of dwelling places and I'm gonna go there, I'm gonna make a place for you. And if I go, I'm coming again. I'm gonna receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be. So believe, don't fear, but believe. We need to believe when we can't see God. Let me say that again. We need to believe when we cannot see God I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said God's uh, God is too loving to be unkind he's too wise to be mistaken when you can't see his heart you can all you you you, I'm sorry when you can't see his hand (laughs) you can always trust his heart you got to trust God even when you don't see him and really, my favorite go-to passage of Scripture, I put it out there on social media this just this last week, is Job's words in Job 23. And I'd really like you to go there because I'd love you to underline a prepositional phrase. Now, if, if you understand a, a prepositional phrase, oftentimes you could just take the prepositional phrase out of the sentence, and the sentence will make perfect sense. But you put it back in the sentence, and it basically colorizes The sentence itself, let me explain. Verse 8 of Job 23. Job, as you know, he is completely decimated physically, head to toe and boils. He's miserable. His friends have been miserable. Everything about him is miserable. His wife's been miserable. He says, behold, I go forward, but he, God, is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he's working, there's your prepositional phrase, when he's working. I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. So please note that Job says, Job says, I don't perceive God. I don't behold God. I don't see God. But in the middle of it, he says in verse nine, on the left hand, and here's your prepositional phrase, when he is working. You could take that out. It all makes perfect sense, but it makes better sense in there. Because what Job was doing was he was saying, I don't see God, but I'm not going to deny that he's working. And so I got to quit fearing. I got to believe him. And that's what you need to do if you're living in fear. If fear is gripping you in some particular way, you've got to believe in though even though you don't see God at work, he is working as he was with the children of Israel. So the first command is fear not if you want to experience the power of God. And then secondly, stand firm. And watch God. He says that in verse 13 and 14 as well. That phrase, stand firm, should be a familiar one to you if you're a New Testament Christian. Because you know that in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God that we may stand firm. In fact, he says, stand no less than four times in verses 11 through 14 in Ephesians uh, 6. The last time he mentions it, he says, don't just stand But stand firm. To stand firm, the the Greek word in Ephesians 6 is a military term uh, for holding your position, so to speak, under attack. It implies that you have courage in the face of opposition, you're gonna hold your ground. And not be like the Israelites. Those of you going through the five-day Bible reading plan, you just read the, the famous story of David and Goliath. I get a kick every time I read that story of how the children of Israel would come out and, and the Philistines would come out and they all come out yelling. Yeah! They would do that. As sort, of, sort of get themselves up for the battle like an athlete might do before he goes into a fight but this is a real fight. And they're all kind of yelling and getting charged. Goliath comes out, challenges them, and the Bible says they all run, (laughs) hardly holding their ground. And what a contrast the armies of the Israelis were to that shepherd boy who was so incensed at their fear and, more importantly, the defiance of that giant that he looked him in the face, that little shepherd boy and said, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. And I'm going to cut your head off and I'm going to feed your army. We're going to decimate your army and feed them to the birds and the wild animals. And then he does exactly that. I mean, it's almost like, I mean, can you just imagine God watching this as David was was saying this to Goliath, I I, I was thinking about this, it's almost like God had to say, geez, how can I stand back after that introduction? (laughs) And just, boom, takes him down. What was David doing? He was standing firm. He was standing his ground against the opposition and God, the power of God, was exuded. Some of you right now are experiencing opposition in the face of obeying God. Don't cave in. Don't cave in no matter what your friends are saying, no matter what people around you that don't fear God are saying. Stand your ground for God and you will experience his power. Watch him do his thing. So stand firm and watch God do his thing, so to speak. And thirdly, be still and know God. Again, all of these expressions are there. End of verse 14, be still. I think some of your Bibles say be silent but it literally means to be still. Listen, it's one thing to stand. (laughs) It's another thing to stand still. Some of you probably thought of that Psalm where David wrote, be still and know that I'm God. That's the idea here. Be still and know that I'm God. By the way, in Psalm 46, verse 10, when David wrote that, when he said be still and know that I'm God, it's a famous expression in the Bible. The phrase be still could be translated stop fighting and know that I'm God. It doesn't sound as cool, but that's exactly what the psalmist was conveying. Stop fighting and know that I'm God. Basically, it's the closest thing we could get to our own vernacular of chill. Be chill. You know, chill. We say to somebody, hey, chill. Hey, chill. What are we saying? Hey, calm down. Take a chill pill. That's the idea when he says, be still. When you're fretting, you're really fighting. When you're fretting, you're really fighting. You're fighting against God. You're resisting him. And if you saw in verses 4 and in verse 18, God gives us the reason that he did what he did and he does what he does. That is so that people will know him, K-N-O-W, know him. John later on says, these things I've written unto you that you may believe, that you may know that you have eternal life. Remember how Jeremiah put it? Let, the, let, the, let, not, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom or the mighty man glory in his might. Not, let not the rich man glory in his riches. Let him who glories or, or let him who boasts, who brags, brag about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. And I exercise my righteousness. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know him. And by doing so, I want to know his power, the power of the resurrected life in Christ. Do you know him? Do you know him? The challenge here is to be still and know God. In 1 John chapter 2, John goes through this litany of young men. And he makes his way to the old men who... I write to you older men who know him. He's assuming through the experiences of life, they've learned how to be still, how to stop fighting, how to stop fretting, how to stop resisting God. Right now, some of you are resisting God. You're fighting against his will. The word here is stop. Stop fighting with God. Be still and you'll know him. Be still before the Bible open up his word, listen to what he says, let him calm your soul, help you to be chill. Don't just do something, sit there. I know it sounds like a counterintuitive, but that's what a lot of us need to do. Don't just do something, sit there and be still and know that God is God. Lastly, go forward and experience God. (laughs) So at some point, you don't just sit there, you got to do something. I'm not contradicting myself. If you want to experience the power of God, there is a time where you don't just do something, you got to sit there. But then there's a time where you don't just sit there, you got to do something. You got to get up, you got to get on the move, all right? I think it was Yogi Berra who famously said, uh, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. (laughs) I get a kick out of that, all of his Yogi Berraisms. but the idea was do something, get at it, go. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, uh, there's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to everybody. But God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will, with the temptation, provide, watch for it, the way of escape so that you can bear up under it. The way of escape is literally before these Jews. The Red Sea was their way of escape. And here's the point. When God opens up a way for you, Take it, whether it's uh, to escape from an enemy or simply to pursue God. Take it, go, go forward. By the way, for the Jews, it was both an escape and a pursuit. By escaping their enemies, they were pursuing God, but they had to go forward. Imagine that experience, walking through those walls on both sides of water. Seeing, experiencing the power of God right before them. Amazing. Spurgeon preached on this. Here's what he wrote Far be it from me ever to say a word in disparagement of the happy, holy, heavenly exercise of prayer. But, beloved, there are times when prayer is not enough, when prayer itself is out of season, when we have prayed over a matter to a certain degree it then becomes sinful to tarry any longer. Our plain duty is to carry our desires into action and having asked God for guidance and having received divine power from on high to go at once to our duty without any longer deliberation or delay, unquote. There's a time where you got to get up and go. These Jews got through, the Egyptians got killed and God got praised. Moses would then do what all of us should do whenever God exerts his omnipotence, whenever he exerts his power, whether by a miracle or by some other fashion, we praise him. We praise him. We've seen the pillar which represents the presence of God, the power. And next week, the praise. There are two reasons. There are two reasons God exerts his power. To bring glory and us to himself. There's your two reasons. Whenever God exerts his power, he does it to bring glory and you to himself. Are you giving glory to God today? I heard about a, a liberal preacher didn't believe in miracles, preaching down the deep south in a Bible-believing church where they where they, they actually reciprocate. They actually go back and forth with preachers. I've only experienced this once or twice in my entire life. It's amazing when you're preaching, people are shouting back at you. And that's what he was doing. He preached about the, the children of Israel going through the Red Sea, and he got to the end, and somebody shouted out, Praise the Lord! Drowned all those Egyptians in the deep blue sea. What a mighty miracle. To which the liberal preacher, in a condescending way, looked at the man and said, That wasn't a miracle. Those Jews crossed a marshland in about six inches of water. And just before he went back to his notes, the, the guy in the audience said, Praise the Lord, God drowned all those Egyptians in six inches of water. What a miracle. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. You want a miracle? Now, look, I'm not, I don't want to sound like one of these health wealth guys preaching, but you can have a miracle today. You really can. Something that's scientifically impossible, but it will happen anyway. And here's what it is. You acknowledge that the living God who did all of these great things Then sent his son Jesus to die for your sins and for mine. On the cross, died for you. If you would turn to Jesus, trust him to be your savior, the one who died and rose spectacularly, miraculously from the grave, If you would believe that in your heart. Here's the miracle. God will expunge all of your sins. Past. Present and future, he'll take them away, never to be seen again. And my friend, that is the miracle of miracles. It's called the miracle of the new birth. It can be yours if you'll place your faith in Jesus Christ. God will exert his power through the cross. You will be saved and he will be glorified. Will you trust him today? My friend, fear not. Stand firm. Be still. Then go forward. God, thank you for this mighty miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea. Your exertion of your power. The amplification of your glory and turning people to trust you as it tells us they did at the very end of the story. You're bringing people to yourself. You are bringing them to yourself then. You're bringing people to yourself now. And Lord, I pray as those who are joining in worship now in the conclusion of this message, if that's you, dear friend, if you're praying in your living room and God has touched your heart and you want his power, you want that miracle of the rebirth, Humble yourself. Acknowledge your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be miraculously saved. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.